0: Let's turn our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. By the time we hit Mark, chapter 7, we are well into the second half of Jesus Christ's ministry on the earth. And if you've been following the story, you know that things are beginning to heat up. In fact, they've already breached the boil pretty much, they're about ready to explode. Uh, The Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, Jesus is on all of their hit list, and uh, they are right now in the process of trying their very best to find something they can use against him to kill him. And he's up in the area of the Galilee, and I think that that was no doubt because of the sovereignty of God wanted him up there. But I think also he knew it was pretty hot down in Jerusalem. That's where's the the uh, that religious headquarters of the Jews, and I think he was purposely staying away from there. Because even though Jesus Christ said, no man can take my life before the time, uh, that doesn't mean he was foolish in the way he approached dangerous situations. Uh, He was up in the area of the Galilee, ministering up there, around the Sea of Galilee and all. And probably the Jewish establishment up there sent word down to Jerusalem to send up some heavies to confront Christ because, you know, he was up in their neighborhood, and they wanted him out just as much as the leaders down in Jerusalem did. And so we see verse 1 of chapter 7. And what we're going to do is kind of read through it, explain it a little bit. And after we get down to verse 23, then we'll make some applications. But it says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. This was uh, a, um, an official group of religious Leaders, leaders that had come out to see Jesus and believe me, it wasn't to be blessed by his ministry. They were looking for things to accuse him of. Uh, things that they might bring to Pilate. Uh, remember the Jews did not have at this point in their history the right to execute anybody. So they had to come to the Roman government to do their dirty work and we're going to see that later on. But this is a, an official group of leaders from Jerusalem. When they saw some of the, his disciples eat bread with defile, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. This is one of those small glimpses by Mark into the fact that he's not writing to a Jewish audience per se. He's writing to, and we believe he was writing to the Romans but a Gentile group, because if he was writing to Jews, he would never have had to explain what hand-washing was all about. That indicates somewhat that he was writing to a group of people that were unfamiliar with Jewish customs in this regard. Anyway, small point, but moving on. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? See, they're looking for anything to pin on him that they can accuse him with. Now, understand the whole issue here is not hygiene. This is not washing your hands before you eat for hygienic reasons. This is ceremonial hand washing. And it says here that this ceremonial hand washing was according to the tradition of of the elders. Now the Jews would not eat unless they washed their hands in a very special prescribed ceremonial way. And this was just to wash away any defilement uh, that they might have picked up. And what they would do is, uh, it says in their law that you had to use a quarter log of water which was equivalent to about one and a half eggshells full of water for this purpose. And it had to be water that was stored in a stone pot and covered so that nothing would fall into it and defile the water you were using to cleanse yourself. It got really involved, okay? And they had to do it in a special way. And they did it before they ate and they also did it between every course that they ate. So the first step was to hold your hands upward with your fingers pointing upward like this. And they would pour the water over your hands and it would run down your fingers to your wrists and drip off there. And as the water ran down, all it cleansed away, was the idea, it cleansed away the defilement, but then it reached your wrist, and your wrist was not defiled, because all that dirty, unclean water had run, run down to your wrist. And they would hold their hands up like this, first of all, and then they would rub them like this, and then they would hold them downward. And now water was poured, and that rinsed off any other defilement that they had picked up, and they would do this before every meal between the courses of meals, and it was one of their main deals, you know, it was one of their biggest rituals or traditions that had been passed down from their, you know, their esteemed teachers of Judaism. Uh, it was a big deal to them. A very big, Jesus Christ was really shattering one of their their most sacred traditions. In fact, the rabbis taught, it would be better for you to f- travel four miles out of your way to get water, to wash your hands with rather than eating with defiled hands. One rabbi was thrown in Roman prison and they gave him just enough water to keep him alive but he refused to eat his food unless he used some of the water to wash his hands in the ceremonial way and he almost died of uh, thirst. This is how committed they were to this principle. In fact they believed that the demon Shibta would rest on unwashed hands while you slept And if you then got up and ate with those same unwashed hands, the food you ate, the demon would attach itself to and come into your body and take control. So this was a big thing for them, a very big thing. Now you say, well, where did this all come from? It came from what was called the tradition of the elders. Now you have to understand something. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai, God gave to him the written law. Remember, he came down with the Ten Commandments. But God also gave to Moses other things that he wrote down. And they became part of the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, the books of Moses, which contain the written law of God, along with many other things, stories and things that, you know, the creation story and all these, a lot of other things that are included. But in those first five books, we have the law of God, which could be broken into three separate parts, the moral, the ceremonial and the civil law. All of it given to Moses and written down for God's people to abide by. Well, in the moral law, God gave great general principles like honor your mother and father. That was a tremendous general principle that you had to then interpret and apply into your own life. Yes, honor your mother and father. We understand that. How does one honor their mother and father? Well, that was up to you to interpret and apply into your own life the way you felt God was leading you. Uh, Love your neighbor as yourself. Great moral principle. But God stayed away from all the details. He didn't define it for them. He just gave it to them and then let them interpret it and apply it into their lives as God led them. Well, this was fine for many centuries. But around the 4th and 5th centuries B.C., there came into being a group of legal specialists called the scribes. Ezra was the first scribe. And the scribes were those who gave themselves over to to uh, gathering up the various books of the Old Testament and recopying them, that's where they were scribes, they would recopy, because they had no printing presses obviously back then, so they would recopy the, the Word of God, and in particular the Law of God, and as such they became tremendous uh, lawyers and legal experts with regard to the Law of God. And these guys also were not content with great moral principles, they, they were really given over, they had a passion for definition. They wanted these great moral principles amplified, expanded, written down, explained, you know? And that's what they gave themselves over to doing. While they copied the Word of God, they would begin to, in the margin, write interpretations with regard to how that principle should be worked out into people's lives. Well, this interpretation became quite lengthy. It evolved over the years. It was handed down from one elder. When the word elder there is not the same concept of an elder in the sense of a leader of a synagogue, these were like the uh, the ancients, is the Greek word. These were the revered teachers in Israel's history. There were seven of them. Gamaliel was one of them. Remember Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel? He was one of the seven great teachers in Israel's history. Where well, There were seven of these guys that that had kind of taken these interpretations and kind of embellished them and added to them. And they kind of evolved over the years. And this became known as the Oral Law. And the Oral Law eventually became the Traditions of the Elders. It was really involved, gang. I mean, man, they came up with interpretation after interpretation. They took one moral principle, like thou shall keep the Sabbath holy. And they had literally hundreds of commandments about what that meant and how to keep the Sabbath holy, you see? And so these guys gave themselves over to this. In fact, these traditions had began to carry more weight with them than the Word of God, as man's traditions often do. About the third or fourth century after Christ, they were all written down into what was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was really a commentary on the law, see, where... The scribes had taken the law and they would comment on it and explain it, amplify it, make interpretations and applications. And it became a weighty thing. And then sometime later, the Talmud came into being, which was a commentary on the Mishnah. So you can imagine... All of these rules and regulations, and that's what it was, this kind of thinking issued itself into thousands and thousands of rules and regulations, all from just simple statements that God made. But these scribes took it and ran with it, and it became so burdensome that not even after a while, not even they or the Pharisees could keep these rules and regulations because there were just so many. So you know what they developed? They developed a law of intention and that was where you could get up in the morning and say today I intend to keep myself pure. And if you said that, that just basically circumvented you from having to keep anything that whole day. No ceremonies, no hand washings, no it was just your way of actually getting around all the rules and regulations that you had, you know, given yourself over to obey. Not even they could keep it. It it got so involved, see? Well, in Jesus' day, these were still called the traditions of the elders. It was really called the oral law because it came to a point when the Jews actually taught, the rabbis actually taught, that when Moses came down from Sinai, not only did he have the written law, but he had a bunch of things that God told him also, laws that God told him, that were to be passed down from elder to elder orally. God never gave that to Moses. This was just something, it was their way of making their interpretations of what God said, raising it to an elevation of equality with what God said, see. And so these oral laws became the traditions of the elders. But like with so many other traditions, they began to carry more weight than what God had actually said, and in fact, began to contradict and undermine what God had said. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ is going to address here. The Pharisees said, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And Jesus is going to basically say, Hey, who are they? He answered to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus Christ doesn't even address their concern. He basically nails them with a prophecy way back in Isaiah concerning this very attitude, how that these people give themselves over to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from them, and in vain they worship Him, because these were all a form of worship, basically. All these traditions and rules and regulations were all involved in the ceremonial law, which was designed in the in the worship of God, and they had all these deals going on. But Jesus said, "You got all these things you're doing, but you worship God in vain because your heart is really not giving given over to Him, and you're basically teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." And oh, how tradition in the church what starts off in a very practical sense as something that the church does because it makes sense practically to do it becomes a tradition and people do it and they're not even sure why they're doing it anymore and eventually the church picks it up and it becomes a doctrine see traditions are like that we do things and after a while we're not even sure why we do them but we just we don't even know where they got their start from i heard a kind of a cute story years ago i heard this in church by the way but uh There was this guy who was uh, him and his wife was a holiday. I think it was Easter time. And she was preparing a ham for the family who was all going to be coming over that day. And as she was her custom to do on on Easter. And before she put the the ham into the pan to put it in the oven to bake, she cut the ends of the ham off. Now, she had done this ever since they had gotten married. And and he had never questioned it, but it really kind of hit him that day. And he said to his wife, he said, Honey, why is it that you cut the ends of the ham off before you put it into the pan to put it into the oven? It seems like such a waste of good meat. And she said, Well, you know what? I I don't really know. My mom always did it that way, and that's why I've always done it that way. But, you know, she'll be here today. Why don't you ask her? So his mother-in-law comes a little later, and he goes up to her and says, Mom, something's bothering me. Why did you always cut the ends of the ham off before you put it in the pan to bake it? It seems like such a waste. And she said... Well, you know, I don't know. My mom always did it that way. and I've always just done it that way. But Grandma will be here a little later. You can ask her. So some more time goes by and, and, and Grandma walks in and he walks up to her and says, You know, Grandmother, I need to ask you a question. Why is it that you always cut the ends of the ham off before you put it in the pan to bake it? I mean, it seems like such a waste. And she said, Well, I don't really know. My mother always did it that way. And so I've always done it that way. But, you know, great-grandma will be here later on, you can ask her. So finally, great-grandma comes in, and he walks up to her, and he says, great-grandmother, I I need to ask you a question. Something is really bothering me. He said, why did you always cut the ends of the ham off before you put it in the pan to bake it? It seems like such a waste. And she said, "Oh, I never had a pan big enough to hold the whole ham. (laughs) You can see why you start something for a practical reason and after a while it becomes kind of a tradition or kind of a thing and you don't even know why you're doing it. And nobody can explain why you're doing it, but just everyone's always done it that way. Well, there's a lot of things that have developed in the church that same way. I mean, years ago when, when the church was in its early years, uh, the church saw that there was such a, a, a diversity in the kinds of people that were coming. Some were very wealthy, some were very poor some had very nice clothes on, some had very shabby clothes on, and it kind of was, it stumbled some people. And so the church uh, elders decided that they would pass out white robes to everybody to wear just white robes, simple. They figured, let's everyone needs to be equal in the house of God so that we could all worship on the same level. So they passed out white robes to everybody. But the choir also wore the white robes, and they would usually conduct worship services after the love feast, which was the big church potluck, and the choir didn't want to clean their mouths off with their clean white robes, which is what they used to do with the old robes that you wore. So after a while, they, they sewed onto them kind of like a collar, an, an, almost as a napkin, basically, they could wipe their mouths with when they finished eating. Now, when the church moved north, they put uh, the bell sleeves on the robes to keep people's hands warm while they were worshiping. And that has kind of evolved over the years, where today tradition dictates that choir robes have the big sleeves and the white, a lot of times you'll see the white around the the neck. And you may laugh, and it really is not funny, it's sad really. Some churches have actually divided over the style choir robes that they were supposed to get for the choir. What starts out practical becomes almost a doctrine, a dogma, we have to do it this way. And it divides the church of Jesus Christ. Years ago in 1795 in London, there was the Bedford Baptist Church. It was the first church in London to put in gas lights. It was quite a thing back then. It was the new thing and the hot setup. And uh, people came from miles around just to see these new gas lights that were put into this church. Well, the pastor, no doubt being a man sensitive to the Spirit, saw all these curious unbelievers there filling his church to look at these new lights and decided it would be an excellent time to teach them about the light of the world. So he turned the Sunday evening service into an evangelistic outreach. And from that time on, the church has kind of picked up on that. And Sunday evening has traditionally been in the church a time for evangelism. Now you say, well, is that wrong? Of course not. Well, as long as you understand that we're not, we must not get locked into it. It can't become a law or a doctrine that we have to do it that way. I mean, I can see the the, the practicality of having choir robes a certain way. That's fine. Or having Sunday evening for your evangelistic outreach because, you know, practically speaking, that's the time when you see most unbelievers coming to your fellowship or whatever. Great. But do it because it makes sense and you've prayed about it, not because you're locked into something that you don't even know why you're doing anymore. And so these uh, Pharisees and scribes had these traditions and things passed down to them, but they were doing things that they didn't even realize why they were doing them anymore. And Jesus goes on to say, and this goes back again to verse 5, where they asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And Jesus said, Why do you worship God in vain, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men? For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me as Corban, that is dedicated to the temple, and you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now Jesus is saying to them, you guys are all caught up in man-made interpretation and laws and regulations and rituals, things that were not from God, and that's so often the case with religion. People come to church because they want to find God. Their, their God has been begun to work in their hearts and begun to draw them. And so the natural place to go is the church. And they come into a church, and instead of getting the Word of God pure and simple, they get the traditions of the elders. And if they, you're in the Catholic Church, that's the traditions of the popes passed down. If you're in the Protestant Church, a lot of times Protestants hold more weight to their denominational pronouncements than to the Word of God. And so what should be a simple thing, coming to the Lord and just loving him has been all encrusted up with layer after layer of, of uh, traditions and man-made rules and regulations. And oftentimes these things contradict what God has said. That was the very case here with the Pharisees. You know, he said, uh, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Now that's not... God did tell them in Leviticus that they were to wash certain things that had come in contact with dead bodies, or if your water pitcher, you woke up in the morning and you found a dead mouse in your water pitcher, okay? If it was clay, you were to break it. If it was metal, you were to put it in the fire and purify it. Because those things, God was trying to pass down uh, laws of hygiene that would help keep them from germs and things like that. But these guys had taken it to an extreme. I mean, they had certain. Rules if your plate had no rim on it, it couldn't be defiled. If your plate had a rim on it, it could be defiled. I mean, it was if your utensils had metal and steel, but mostly metal, it could be defiled. But if it was mostly wood, it couldn't be defiled. And it was like, it was ridiculous after a while, you know. And they went through all these tedious things because when they came home from the marketplace, you never knew what you, know, what you bought had been, been touched by a Gentile. So they'd bring it home and they'd wash it and cleanse these things. And and it just got to be a real joke. And Jesus said, you know, you reject God's command by teaching your traditions. And then he nails them with a very common thing that they were all familiar with. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. And that's what God said. Very simple, straightforward. But so often people who want to be religious and yet still want to be in control of their own life, you know what, it's so easy, it's so easy to pick up on a tradition or a ritual and observe that. That takes no commitment, that takes no holiness, it takes no uh, integrity. You could be the most vile, wretched sinner, but still go through the religious motions and then get the appearance or have the appearance that you're a righteous man. I remember uh, one of my commentaries, uh, he mentioned uh, a story of a Mohammedan who was chasing a man with a knife raised in his hand, chasing this guy to murder him. And of course, the uh, uh, those involved in, uh, in um, uh, Mohammedanism, they pray several times a day and there's a uh, a cry or a bell or something that goes off at the various times. And when you hear that, you're supposed to unroll your prayer mat, which you carry with you all the time, face towards Mecca and pray. Well, this guy was running after this guy to kill him in cold blood. The bell or whatever rang out for prayer time. He stops, unrolls his mat, races through his prayers, rolls it back up again, and takes after this guy to kill him again. And the point is that, you know what? Where is the real religion in that, you know? That's just hypocrisy. And that's what Jesus was telling these guys. You're hypocrites. The Greek word is Hippocrates. It's a word that was used of an actor on stage performing a part. Jesus said, you guys are just playing a part. You're not really righteous. You have no real heart for God. You're all you have is a heart for your rules and regulations that give you the appearance of being righteous men. But in your hearts, your hearts are all messed up, and you're actually teaching uh, things that contradict what God has said. God said, "Honor your mother and father." But you say, "If a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may have received from me is korban." that is dedicated to the temple, and you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God no effect. Honor your mother and father implied in it that you would take care of your parents when they got elderly. But these religionists, these phonies, these hypocrites had devised a system whereby if you said, well, my possessions are Corban. In other words, mom and dad, if your parents came to you and said, son, we're really hurting, could you please help us out? God says, honor your mother and father. God says you are to take care of your parents, right? You could say, Well, mom and dad, I'm really sorry, but you know I've dedicated everything that I have to the Lord. It's all Corban. And it's san- it's sacred now, it's sanctified. I can't I can't uh, I can't give anything to you. See? The thing about it was though, anything in, in your possession, you dedicated Corban, remained in your possession. And if you ever needed to use it, they had devised a little system whereby you could pronounce Corban over it again and that released it from the vow and you could use it for your own use. It was such hypocrisy, you know. It was such hypocrisy. And Jesus is indicting them for this kind of hypocrisy. You guys claim to be religious men and yet every which way you turn you try to circumvent what God really intended through these laws. And what hypocrisy to come across so holy and so godly and yet your parents are starving to death because you've developed a little way by which you can sound real holy and pious, but yet not do for your folks what God intended you to do for them, which is honoring them by supplying their needs. And Jesus was really, I mean, man, when it came to prostitutes and tax collectors, he had kind things to say to. These guys, he never had a kind word to say to these men because they were hypocrites and phonies. And the one thing the Lord cannot tolerate is the kind of religious hypocrisy that passes itself off as godly, when in fact it's nothing but uh, ungodliness, masquerading as godliness. And so you make the word of God, verse 13, no effect through your tradition which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So, So many other examples Jesus said I could give you, but that gets at the heart of it. And when he had called all the multitude to him, he said to them, hear me. Now everyone's kind of just kind of standing around. And he calls everybody to him. He says, hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone is ears to hear, let him hear. Now before I explain that, back in Matthew chapter 15, there is the parallel passage And after Jesus nailed these guys for their hypocrisy, in verse 12, the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, poor babies? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind... Both will fall into a ditch, implying very clearly that there are a lot of people in the church. Well, these guys weren't in the church, of course, but there's a lot of people in religious positions that are as lost and even more lost than the people they claim to be ministering to. There's a lot of people in religious leadership positions around this country that people are following, but they're blind leaders of the blind. And they're teaching us commandments. The traditions of men I talked to one of the guys at the retreat this weekend and he said to me that his dad is a devout Catholic and I was a Catholic and I'm nothing against Catholic people but I, I have fault with the church in a lot of areas but he has a picture he says my dad is a very strong Catholic and he has a picture of Jesus in his bedroom and under it he's got a candle holder and he buys a candle from the church it's a 30 day called a 30 day candle and you light it once a day for the whole month. And I'm not sure what that's supposed to do. And I don't even think his father knows really what that's supposed to do. But it's supposed to do something good. Hey, can't hurt, right? At least that's the thinking. But it's a dead ritual. Lighting a candle in front of a picture of Jesus will do nothing for a person spiritually. And if you put your hope in that ritual, you're going to find out someday you put your hope in a lie. It was the blind leading the blind. And you're both going to fall into a ditch. see. So, very sad thing. And Jesus said to them, it's not what enters a man from the outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. So you have to understand something too. This was spoken about 150 years after the Maccabean period. And during the Maccabean period, uh, well, first of all, the Syrians controlled Palestine and um, Antiochus Epiphanes was the Syrian general or king that was ruling at that time and he forced a lot of people a lot of Jews to to be more like the Gentiles and a lot of Jews died because they would not eat certain foods that God had forbidden see because they felt it defiled them and a lot of them went to their death because of it. And this was a very, you know, heated thing. They were very committed to that principle. So when Jesus makes this statement, you can imagine, you can imagine the controversy, see, and the people that he upset and angered. But like always when he makes a very difficult statement, he always seems to add, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, see. If anybody is really tuned into the Spirit, listen to what I'm saying. And when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. And he said to them, Are you thus without uh, understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach. See, that's the issue, the heart. And is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Jesus is in a sense saying, Look, guys, the issue is not food. Because a man cannot be defiled spiritually by anything that enters into his mouth physically. Because whatever enters the mouth physically goes into the stomach, it's digested, and the waste is eliminated from his body. Therefore, all foods are really clean. He's trying to tell them that God's intention behind these things was always to get at the heart. Remember circumcision? And God gave his people circumcision as a sign of the covenant that he was making between him and Abraham and all of his descendants after him. But the Jews picked up on that ritual and began to think that if you're circumcised, you're saved. That's all you need. To, it's like, it's like uh, some denominations believe if you're water baptized, you're saved. You could basically do whatever you want. As long as you're dipped in water, that's it, you're saved. Well, the Jews felt the same way about circumcision and they were circumcising their children but living lives that were totally contrary to God and yet feeling well I'm circumcised though I mean that's the seal that's the sign of the covenant I'm one of God's people and so on and several times in the Old Testament God says look circumcise the foreskins of your hearts and be unclean no longer the whole idea was God gave them an outward ritual to signify what God wanted to be an inward spiritual truth The cutting of the way of the flesh of the body signified the cutting away of that which was unclean. But it really only signified the fact that as my people, God was saying, what I really want to circumcise is your hearts. All these outward rituals always looked inward spiritually to the heart. But they missed the spiritual application and focused so much on the physical ritual, they were missing the whole point. The same with food. Jesus said, you guys have missed the whole point. See. Those foods were to be stayed away from, okay, for, uh, for health reasons, some of them. But also, a lot of those foods were, God said, stay away from them because they signified spiritual uncleanness in a symbolic way. And God wanted his people to, uh, to understand that fellowshipping with God meant you needed to be spiritually pure. But the food wasn't really the issue. It was the heart. It was always the heart. And he said, what comes out of a man, that's what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications. The Greek word is porneia. Guess what word we get from that? Pornography. All kinds of immoral, evil things are wrapped up in that word. Fornications, murders, thefts, Covetousness, which is a love of having, always wanting to have more, coveting uh, what others have; wickedness, deceit, licentiousness, an evil eye. The Greek implies envy, looking at what others have. And if it was in your power to do, you'd cast an evil spell on them to remove all that they have. Envy, the an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And this is a kind of a moral foolishness is implied. Not just that somebody is a little slow mentally is not with it and they're kind of a fool. This is a person who's got their mental faculties but uses their brains and their lives in, in foolish pursuits. that Things that obviously God would condemn. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. And this is the whole heart, I don't know if I can use that expression, no pun intended, of the passage. The heart, see, Here, the Holy Spirit is contrasting religion with relationship. The Pharisees were the epitome of religion, but religion only affects the surface of a person's life. It can only clean them up outwardly to a certain degree, but does nothing to change the heart. And that's why Jesus Christ blasted the Pharisees at one point when he said, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. And see, around the Passover and various other major Jewish feast days, Jews from all over the known world would come to Jerusalem to observe these feasts. But if you came in contact with a tomb, if you walked over a grave, inadvertently you were defiled. You were unclean. You couldn't observe that feast. So because these other Jews, not knowing the area... They would, For their benefit, they would whitewash the tombs so that they would be easy to spot. You would stay away from that. Then you knew it was a tomb. You wouldn't want to come in contact with it inadvertently. And Jesus picked up on that and said, you Pharisees are like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you appear all all clean and righteous and holy, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. And that was the point. See, these guys were the epitome of what was considered religious, which is oftentimes miles away from what God wants from us, which is a relationship. You know, God doesn't want religion from us. He wants a relationship with us. That's what he wants. Not a relationship based on all kinds of rules and regulations, which you can observe and be as far from God as possible, but a relationship that causes you to want to do certain things or not to do certain things because you love God. See? because it's all in the heart. The Bible has a lot to say about the heart, and really that's where it's all at. Man's religion can only affect the outward, but it can do nothing to change the heart. And the heart is really where, what God wants to get a hold of, because if God gets a hold of a person's heart, God's got a hold of that person's life. Now when we talk about the heart, or the Bible does, we know that the heart obviously is the organ in our chest cavity that pumps blood to the various parts of our body. But when the Bible talks about the heart, It talks in terms of several non-physical functions of our being. Not uh, obviously the organ that we call the heart, but when the the Bible writers use the word heart, sometimes they're using it in terms of the emotions. In Nehemiah chapter 2, when he was sad before King Artaxerxes because of what was going on in Jerusalem, the king looked at him and said, Look, why are you so down? This is nothing but sorrow of hearts. Talking about the emotions there. Sometimes the Bible writers will use the word heart with regard to the intellect. Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, why do you ponder this in your hearts? Sometimes the Bible writers will use the word heart to uh, denote uh, the will. It says of Daniel that Daniel purposed in his heart not to be defiled by the king's food. You see, Uh, looking at all of these then, we can see that when the Bible talks about the heart, it's really talking about the inner man with its many functions. See? And the heart is really the control center of our lives. See? It's the control center. Whatever dominates your heart dominates you. Uh, Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, above all else guard your heart because out of it flows the issues of life. Guard what what enters into your hearts because whatever is filling your heart will control your life. See? We know the Bible teaches us that it's in the heart where salvation is gained. What did Paul say? For if we confess Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts, God has raised from the dead, we shall be saved. But it's also in the heart where fellowship and communion with God are maintained. Because David said, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. He was talking about ascending the Mount Moriah to the temple where people would have fellowship with God. How do you have fellowship with God? Well, there's only one way to have clean hands and a pure heart, you see. Not only has the heart always been the key to every blessing from God into our lives, but the heart has also been the source of all of our problems since the beginning of time. Remember how that in Genesis chapter 6 how God finally said, that's it, I'm going to destroy the world because he saw the imaginations of men's hearts, that they were only evil continually. Man had become so corrupted in his heart, and because of it, violence and evil had filled the world to the point where God said, enough is enough, I'm going to wipe out everything except Noah and his family. And here Jesus said, it's really out of the hearts that precedes all of man's problems. It's in man. See, that which defiles man is really that which is in man, is what Jesus is saying. So every kind of other system, religious, psychological, that seeks to focus on the outside is going to come up short because the problem is inside. We hear the sociologists and the psychologists tell us the reason people are messed up and the reason they do bad things is because of their upbringing or their environment. And if we can somehow change their teach their parents how to be better parents, which I'm not saying is wrong, obviously, or somehow change their environment, people would stop doing evil. But see, that overlooks a basic problem in that where did man originally sin? In the perfect environment, paradise, the Garden of Eden, with who was the Father, God the Father. You can't get much better than that, right? And man still sinned and fell, why? Because his environment and his parenting was, was not the problem. It was what was in him. And the Bible says very clearly that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, see? And as Jesus said, it's the heart and what comes out of the heart that defiles a man. So the only hope for man then was to somehow change his heart. Now that presented a real problem. Because man does not have the capacity to change his own heart. You see, that was the only solution to man's problems. And yet, man did not have the capacity. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have, clean- I have made my own heart clean. I am pure from my sin. Nobody is the response to that. Nobody can say that they have cleansed their own heart, That they have purified themselves from their own sin. Nobody can say that. As God said to the prophet Jeremiah, if the, if the Ethiopian can change the color of his skin or the leopard can change its spots, then you who are accustomed to doing evil can start doing good. And the, and the obvious implication is there's no way. We are what we are by nature. You see, when Adam and Eve fell, they fell for everybody that would come after him. And every person born into this world was born with a fallen nature and a wicked, sinful heart. And that's why a man does the things he does, because his heart is given over to those things. The actions of his life are just the fruit of what's going on. You know, the heart is the root of the problem. And the fruit that comes out of that is just simply evidence of what's going on in the heart. You see, that's where the problem comes in. That's why religion is so useless, because religion says, hey, we can change people. And all it does is regulate their behavior. It doesn't change anybody. It just kind of regulates and restrains their behavior. It's like, uh, I suppose you could probably, could train a lion to lay down next to a lamb and not pounce on it and eat it. I suppose you could train a lion to do that if you showed him somehow that to eat the lamb would be worse off for him than to, you know, I mean, it would be better off not to eat it than to go ahead and eat it. But all you're doing really is restraining behavior. The, the lion, no doubt, is salivating, wanting to get a hold of that lamb, but knows he better not or he's going to get the boom lowered on him. Well, you know, we could, we could help people to curb behavior, restrain them, teach them not to do certain things because of certain consequences. But all the while, they desire to do those things. They're longing to do those things. And that's what religion does. It comes along and surface cleans a person's life. Just on the surface, you know, can't get down into the heart. And so people don't do certain things, not because they're so righteous, just simply because this is what they need to do. This is what the church has told them to do. But in their hearts, man, they want to do it so bad. Oh, and when people aren't watching, sometimes they will. But see, that's religion. And that's why it's worthless. We need a change of heart. And man has no capacity to change. His own heart. But, thank God, the Bible says that God can and does change a person's heart. David said, create in me a clean heart, O God. And the word there for create in the Hebrew was the word bara, which is a Hebrew word that's only used in relation to God. There are other Hebrew words that yatsar and uh, and, uh, and asa, which are, don't really mean create in the sense that God creates calling into existence something out of nothing. That's bara. Only God can do that. There are other Hebrew words that really mean to uh, to make or to form out of existing materials, see. But only God can create. And only God can create a new heart. David said, created me a clean heart, O God. Only you can do that, Lord. I can't do that, see. I need for you to do that. And in the book of Ezekiel, God said, there's coming a day when I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and all those who are descendants of Abraham by faith. I'm going to put a new heart in them, a heart that desires to do my will. See, that's the problem, our hearts. And when we got saved, and that's the, the, the new covenant, is all, that's what it's all, it's a heart transplant, guys. When you accepted Christ, God performed spiritual surgery on you. You didn't feel it, it was instantaneous, But what God did was he pushed aside that old, sinful, corrupt heart, and he placed in you a new heart. Now, the old one, unfortunately, is still there. You have two natures now inside. One nature now wants to do what God has said because you love the Lord. But there's another voice inside that still wants to do its own thing. That's the old nature. And the whole Christian life basically boils down to yielding to one or the other. And the longer you walk with the Lord, hopefully, the more you yield to the spirit and to that new heart, and the less you yield to the old self. So, but see, that's what relationship is all about. You're not God reaches in and works in the heart. He gives you a new heart. And as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs, Clean the, cleanse the inside of the cup, it will overflow and cleanse the outside also. If God changes the heart and gives you a new heart, well then... It's going to overflow into your life and begin to see. you're going to begin to see the actions of your life begin to change. I know that's what happened in my life, and no doubt that's what you've seen in your life. Once you accepted Christ, all of a sudden these new attitudes began to be there. Uh, you realize things, certain things were wrong to do, things that you might have been involved in, things that you never wanted to do before, like read the Bible, pray, go to church. Suddenly, man, you know, you couldn't stay away. And, and a lot of people look at you and say, I don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to have to go to church. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to have to go to prayer meetings. That's boring. You guys, oh man, no way. But they don't realize. These things we, we don't do because we're forced to do them. That's what religion does. Forces you to do certain things. When God gets a hold of your heart and changes it, man, you love to do certain things. It's not a chore. It's a joy. Because God has given you a new heart. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Now listen to me. You could have two people. One of them could read the Bible, could pray, go to church, worship God, and be as far from God as humanly possible. Another person could go to church, read the Bible, pray, worship God, and be as close to God as humanly possible. What's the difference? One sees these things as an end in themselves. They're a duty, an obligation. The other sees them as a means to an end. Before I got saved, I went to church because I was supposed to go to church. You know, I didn't read the Bible really, but in church we did. And I did it not because I enjoyed hearing it so much, because that's what I was required to do. And I know some people that I'm convinced are not saved. Well, the Pharisees weren't saved and they spent hours in the Word of God every week. In fact, Jesus said to them, You search the Scriptures daily, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it's they that testify of Me, and yet you refuse to come to Me that you might have this life. You could spend a lot of time in the Word and in prayer and in church and never really know God. Why? Because you're looking at these things as some kind of obligation that if you do these things, somehow they're going to magically transform you into this holy godly person. That's not it at all. See, I read the Bible and I go to church and I worship God and I pray, not as an end in itself, but because I love God so much because of what He's done in my heart, that these are the outgrowth of that heart for God. It's the fruit. See? But if you make it the focus, and a lot of Christians have kind of done this, they've kind of backslidden away from God, and what is the tendency? i got to read more. I need to pray more. I need to go back to church more. If you're looking at those things that transform you, into a dynamic crisis, forget about it. What you need is to get on your knees and say, Lord, break me. Lord, work in my heart. My heart has grown cold. Create in me a clean heart. Help me to go back to my first love. And when you get back to your first love, because your heart has gotten touched by the Lord, all of a sudden you're going to pray again and read the word again and go to church again and worship God again, because that's the outflow of a heart that loves the Lord. But if you look at it as an end in itself, it's a fruitless, frustrating exercise. Because you're reading, you're praying, and people say to me all the time, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm going to church. Why am I like this? Be- because you're looking at these things as like a magic formula. Get into the Lord. Bring your heart to God. God wants a relationship. He doesn't want all these dead rituals, the lighting of candles, and even we Christians are guilty of our little traditions and mindsets, you know, We fall into legalism with regard to certain things, even as they did. And maybe we don't light candles, and maybe we don't do some of the outrageous things that they did. But even in true devotions we can let these things become, or or these devotions become an end in themselves. And we become just as bad as the religionists in Jesus' day who went through the motions but had no emotion for him. And that's the problem, see? Like the church of Ephesus that Jesus talked to in the book of Revelation, he said, You've got so many good things going on in your church. A lot of good, right things. But the one thing you haven't got right is that you've left your first love. And I'm not going to stay in a church where there's no love for me. I don't care how good your works are. I want you to love me. When you love me, everything else is going to be right. But you can go through the motions and have a heart that's far from God. And God is always interested in the heart. Remember what it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In the Greek, the word there uh, for pure, it, it implies a, um, a purity, of course, but also an unmixed nature. When the Bible talks about blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, well, obviously, it's talking about a purity spiritually that happens through the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So it talks about salvation, but it also talks about consecration you know, and commitment, because the word also carried with it the idea of being unmixed or undiluted. When I worked for Texaco years ago, oil company at the right, right down the street here, basically, worked at the, at the terminal, uh, loaded gasoline trucks and worked on those big 50-foot tanks. Once in a while, somebody got their signals crossed and they would pump in, into a gasoline tank, diesel fuel, and we would say it was commingled, okay? It was, these things were mixed together and it was no good had to pump it out and send it back to the refinery to be refined again. And the idea there with pure is a, is, a, is a heart that is not commingled with anything else. It's pure in the sense it's given only over to God. The Bible talks about singleness of heart. What does that mean? It means a heart that's not divided between anything else. Now, David was not a sinless man, but he had a heart that was single toward God. And because of it, God called him a man after his own heart. David was not sinless. And when God talked about David being a man after his own heart, it didn't imply David was without sin, that David never blew it. It just implied that David's heart was really totally given over to God. And as would happen sometimes with people that really love God, they blow it. But David's heart was not divided between God and anything else, unlike Saul, whose heart was divided every which way. But David had a heart that wanted to do God's will. And God is always looking at the heart, see? And that's when you have a heart that desires to do God's will and to please and to honor God. If God's got a hold of your heart that way, man, there's no limit to what He can do with your life, see? So that's the issue here. The Holy Spirit is really presenting to us two approaches to God. One is the religious approach, one is the relationship approach. Obviously, the religious approach is wrong. Because so often it focuses more on traditions and rituals and man-made laws than upon the Lord himself. God wants a relationship. And he wants us to realize that, really, the heart is the problem. Everything evil in our lives comes from our hearts. Everything blessed in our lives, come, lives comes from our hearts. The heart is the issue. Therefore, take heed to your heart. You know? Take heed to what you watch, what you listen to. Guard your heart, the psalm that said, for out of it flow the issues of life. Very important point. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we know. We know how important a pure and undivided heart is. And Father, we look at our own lives and we see things that we know are the result of impurities in our hearts. And Lord, we don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to be impure. We don't want to go through the motions and yet our hearts are far from you. We want to be sincere. We want to be genuine. We want hearts that are pure and uncommingled with anything of this world. We want to be single in our hearts towards you, Lord. And we want to be called men and women after your own heart. And we know, Lord, that your eyes go to and fro about the face of the whole earth looking for those whose hearts are right that you might show yourself strong through. Oh, Lord, you're not asking us to be able, just available. You'll supply the power to do the work you've called us to do. But our hearts must be dealt with. Help us to look at our hearts honestly, Lord, that we not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. The junk that you see hidden deep within the recesses of our hearts Stuff we're even blinded to, Lord, bring out that we might see it for what it is and repent, confess it, that you might purge us of it. We want to have pure hearts, Lord, for only those who have pure hearts will really be used by you. And we just love you, and we don't want to be Pharisees, Lord. So often, I think we sometimes model the attitude and the qualities of Pharisees more than, than you, Lord Jesus. We look down on people. We walk around haughty because of certain things. and All the while, your heart is grieving because we're sinners saved by grace. And those around us are just sinners. The only difference is that your grace has touched our lives and not theirs yet. And so help us, Lord, to be true representatives of you, that our hearts would be tender and sensitive towards those who are lost, that we might reach out to them in love and say, I was once where you are. I know what you're going through. I know how empty and lonely your life is. Let me share with you, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to have those kinds of hearts. Father, we ask this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.